Welcome to Christopher Wynne's I Never Knew That podcast series, opening a door onto a world of knowledge, adventure and surprise. I'm Christopher Wynne, author of the I Never Knew That book series about Britain and Ireland. I'm also the author of The Book of Christmas, and as an introduction to my new podcast series, Christopher Wynne's I Never Knew That, coming to a streaming service near you in early 2021, I have prepared a special Christmas podcast in which we travel the nation in search of entertaining Christmas stories and fascinating Christmas facts that will shine a light on the origins and traditions of the great British Christmas and will make you want to exclaim again and again, I never knew that. The great British Christmas has been thousands of years in the making, an exhilarating blend of age-old ritual, overindulgence, Christian celebration and extravagant merchandising, all knitted together by the Victorians and then honed and added to by every generation since. Happy, happy Christmas that can win us back to the delusions of our childhood days, recall to the old man the pleasures of his youth and transport the traveller back to his own fireside and quiet home. So wrote Charles Dickens, whose novella A Christmas Carol did so much to herald Christmas as a family occasion and a time of goodwill. A Christmas Carol is still a great British Christmas favourite to this day and has been adapted for stage and screen well over a hundred times. Our first port of call explores the beginnings of a very British contribution to Christmas frivolity that was taking shape around the time A Christmas Carol was first published, in 1843. Stop 1. Finsbury Square, London. Finsbury Square? What has Finsbury Square to do with Christmas? You must be crackers. Is this some sort of a joke? No, but this is. What do you get if you cross Father Christmas with a duck? I don't know. What do you get if you cross Father Christmas with a duck? A Christmas quacker. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Tucked away in the southeast corner of Finsbury Square is an ornate Victorian Gothic drinking fountain, erected in the early 20th century by Thomas and Walter Smith in memory of their mother Martha. And the reason they placed it here is that this was the site of their factory, the world's first factory for making Christmas crackers. The Christmas cracker 
was invented in 1847 by Thomas and Walter's father, Tom Smith, a confectioner who ran a sweet shop and manufactory in East London. Always on the lookout for new delights, Tom travelled to Paris in 1840 and came across the bonbon, a sugared almond wrapped in a twist of paper. He brought it back to London and began to sell it in his sweet shop as a novelty Christmas gift. It proved very popular, and indeed, not only did the twist of paper evolve into the traditional sweet wrapper so widely used today, but the name Bonbon was taken and applied to a whole variety of sweets, from luxury chocolates to chewy centres wrapped in a sugary coating. Toffee bonbons being rather a favourite of mine, if you must know. Over the next few years, Tom Smith introduced a raft of new elements to his bonbon, inserting trinkets and a love motto into the wrapper. And then, in 1850, inspired by the crackling of logs on the fire, he added an exhilarating crack that occurred when the wrapping was broken. This bang of expectation, as he called it, was very well received, and so Tom decided to refine the bonbon further by wrapping the twist of paper around a cardboard tube, in which he deposited little toys or pieces of jewellery, and thus was born the Christmas cracker, and it became so popular that Tom was forced to move to bigger premises in Finsbury Square, where the business remained until 1953. After Tom Smith died in 1880, the company was taken over by his sons, Thomas, Henry and Walter. The paper crowns can be blamed on Henry, while all three of them travelled the world in search of unusual gift ideas. Although surprisingly, none of the brothers was prepared to confess to being responsible for the corny jokes and puns, without which Christmas in Britain would not be Christmas. Who beats his chest and swings from Christmas cake to Christmas cake? I don't know. Who beats his chest and swings from Christmas cake to Christmas cake? Tarzipan. (laughs) (laughs) By the end of the 19th century, Christmas crackers and all the associated merriment had become well and truly established as an integral part of the British Christmas. Tom Smith crackers are still made today, and since 1909 an exclusive range of Tom Smith crackers has been produced for the royal family. A cracking British contribution to Christmas cheer, first made in Finsbury Square, but updated every year. Why does Donald Trump eat his Christmas dinner off a paper plate? I don't know. Why does Donald Trump eat his Christmas dinner off a paper plate? He doesn't get along with China. Ooh, satire. (laughs) (laughs) Why won't Father Christmas go down a chimney full of soot? I don't know. Why won't Father Christmas go down a chimney full of soot? Carbon footprints. Topical. But joking aside, 
Tom Smith's Christmas crackers, much loved as they are, are only one example of the many more modern rituals added to the midwinter festivities that have been going on in Britain for thousands of years. Stop 2. Stonehenge, Wiltshire To discover the origins of the British Christmas, we must go back through the mists of time to Stonehenge, the finest prehistoric monument in Europe, built around 2500 BC at the dawn of civilization on these islands. Our earliest ancestors lived by the rhythm of the sun upon which life depended, and the most important part of the sun's annual cycle was the winter solstice, the shortest day of the year, which marked the rebirth of the sun, after which the long dark days of winter would begin to lengthen out towards the spring. Evidence of this can be found at Stonehenge, where the stones are aligned to the sunset of the winter solstice, so that the rays of the setting sun on the shortest day shine directly through the narrow gap between the largest standing stones. Tribes came from far and wide to celebrate this moment with feasting and drinking, and two miles northeast of Stonehenge, within sight of the stones, is Durrington Walls, the remains of a vast Neolithic settlement where the visitors would have stayed during the festivities. The bones of thousands of animals slaughtered for the feast have been uncovered at Durrington, and there is evidence that the animals were herded from as far away as Wales and northern England indicating that Stonehenge was undoubtedly Britain's most important ritual site. Different tribes came together from all over the country, much as families come together at Christmas today. What does the dog want for Christmas? I don't know. What does the dog want for Christmas? A mobile phone! Oh! The feasting and drinking had a purpose too. It was expensive to house and feed the animals during the winter months when they couldn't be out in the fields, and so it made sense to slaughter them, providing a glut of fresh meat that needed to be eaten, while the wines and beers that had been fermenting over the summer would be ready for drinking. What is the most popular Christmas wine? I don't know. What is the most popular Christmas wine? I don't like Brussels sprouts. <laughs> <laughs> we now fast forward some two and a half thousand years to Roman Britain. Stop three, Fishbourne Roman Palace, Sussex. The Roman version of these pagan midwinter festivals, such as we have witnessed at Stonehenge, was called Saturnalia, in honour of the god of the harvest, Saturn. And where better to get a feel for how the Romans in Britain partied than at the largest Roman residence north of the Alps, Fishbourne Roman Palace near Chichester in Sussex. The palace was built around AD 75, not long after the Roman invasion of Britain, for Cogidubnus, king of the local Belgic tribe, 
who accepted Roman rule and adopted Roman ways, and no doubt to please his new masters, threw himself into Saturnalia with gusto. Saturnalia was when the Romans rewarded themselves for a year of hard toil. The crops were gathered in, the autumn sowing was done, the cattle had been slaughtered and there was plenty of fresh meat. All work and business ceased, shops were closed and the days were short, so there was little to do but party. The reign of Saturn was thought to be a golden age of peace and plenty when all were equal and there were no masters and servants, and so the normal rules were relaxed during Saturnalia. Informal clothes were worn, people put on silly hats. Maybe that's where Henry Smith got the idea for the silly paper crowns in Christmas crackers. Masters waited on their servants. All were allowed to overindulge and misbehave. And this is how Saturn himself described his own festival, in the words of the poet Lucian of Samosata, writing in the 2nd century AD. During my week, the Sirius is barred, no business allowed. Drinking and being drunk, noise and games and dice, appointing of kings and feasting of slaves, singing naked, clapping of tremulous hands, an occasional ducking of corked faces in icy water. Such are the functions over which I preside. Sounds pretty much like the average family Christmas to me. During Saturnalia, the Romans would deck their halls with boughs of holly and other evergreens, representing hope and everlasting life. Holly, in particular, was a favourite for Druids and other pagans, as well as the Romans, for its prickles were said to ward off evil spirits. People also gave each other presents. As the 4th century writer Libanius put it, The impulse to spend seizes everyone. People are not only generous towards themselves, but also towards their fellow men. A stream of presence pours itself out on all sides. The Roman poet Catullus described Saturnalia as the best of times, and the Romans would go around and wish each other well, with the merry greeting, Yo, Saturnalia! Just as we today bid each other Merry Christmas. Yo, Saturnalia! So here we have the first elements of the familiar traditional Christmas, celebrating the rebirth of the sun in the dark days of midwinter, work paused, families getting together, feasting and drinking, the wearing of silly hats, the giving of presents, goodwill to all. In the 4th century AD, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, and Saturnalia, along with the pagan midwinter festivals on which it was based, were appropriated by the church and transformed into Christmas, the celebration of the birth of a different type of sun, the Son of God, light of the world. The church, 
not wishing to alienate its new congregation, allowed the more enjoyable elements of the festivities, such as eating and drinking and overindulgence, to be retained. And Christianity and Christmas were then spread throughout the Roman Empire. When the Romans withdrew from Britain at the start of the 5th century, the Christian Celtic communities left behind were pushed north and west by the invading pagan Saxons. The Celtic church survived and even flourished in Ireland and parts of Scotland, but England became almost entirely pagan. It was over 200 years before Christmas came to England. Stop 4. Canterbury, Kent In AD 597, Saint Augustine, a monk sent from Pope Gregory in Rome to convert the pagan Saxons to Christianity, landed in Kent, our oldest English county, where he was greeted by the local overlord King Ethelbert. Encouraged by his Christian wife Bertha, King Ethelbert invited St. Augustine to set up his ministry in Canterbury, and Augustine established his headquarters in the Church of St. Martin's, which had been built on the site of a pagan temple and used for Christian worship since Roman times. It is the oldest church in continuous use for Christian worship in the whole of Britain, and still shows Roman bricks in its walls today. Then it was the private chapel of Queen Bertha, and the beautifully carved font quite possibly marks the exact spot where King Ethelbert himself was baptised by St Augustine, maybe using a basic form of that very same font, who knows, before it was honed and decorated by the Normans. Incidentally, for those of a certain vintage, and nothing to do with Christmas, buried in the churchyard of St Martin's is Mary Tortell, creator of Rupert the Bear. On December the 25th that year, 597 AD, St Augustine marked England's very first Christmas Day by baptising 10,000 of King Ethelbert's followers in the fields beside St Martin's Church. And Christmas has been observed in various ways in England ever since, by the Saxons and by the Normans, William the Conqueror even had himself crowned in Westminster Abbey on Christmas Day in 1066. By the time we reach the Elizabethan age, Christmas had become 12 long days of riotousness, harking back to Saturnalia. But this was put a stop to by the Puritans in the 17th century. And during the Commonwealth of Oliver Cromwell, between 1644 and the Restoration in 1660, the pagan excesses of the traditional festivities were exorcised in favour of quiet contemplation. Stop 5. Rosslyn Chapel, Midlothian, Scotland There is no other building in Britain, or possibly the world, like Roslyn Chapel. 
The chapel was begun in 1447 by Sir William St. Clair, the last Prince of Orkney and the first Earl of Caithness, and forms the choir of what was intended to be a much larger place of worship for the Sinclair family, who were deeply involved in masonry and later became Grand Masters of the Masons of Scotland. It is a place of mystery and intrigue, a picture gallery, a jungle, a sumptuous feast of fruits and faces, leaves and plants, animals and birds, carved in stone on every nook and cranny, pillar and wall. The finest of them all can be found on the Prentice Pillar, wrapped around in exquisite flowers and foliage, carved by an apprentice inspired by a dream while his master was in Italy learning how to do it. On his return, the master mason rather overreacted, as artists can do, and he slew his apprentice in a fit of jealousy. There are stories in every carving in Rosslyn, hidden meanings, signs and emblems, recognisable only to a chosen few, Knights Templar, Freemasons, readers of Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, the sculptures are of quite outstanding brilliance, depicting biblical tales, Lucifer the fallen angel, the seven deadly sins, the dance of death. There are pagan symbols, mythical beasts, dragons, plants found only in America, carved 50 years before Columbus sailed, and the largest number of green men found anywhere. It is the green men their faces wreathed in leaves and foliage we have come to see, for they are the earliest ancestors of Father Christmas. Why does Father Christmas have three gardens? I don't know. Why does Father Christmas have three gardens? So he can ho, ho, ho. <laughs> The lovable, jolly Father Christmas of today is a blend of two mythical figures, one of them being the American Santa Claus, based on the Dutch St Nicholas, 3rd century Bishop of Myra, who used his inherited fortune to help the poor by dropping bags of gold down people's chimneys and into their stockings hung up by the fire to dry, and who was introduced into America by the Dutch after they founded New Amsterdam later New York, in the 17th century. What does Santa suffer from if he gets stuck in a chimney? I don't know. What does Santa suffer from if he gets stuck in a chimney? Claustrophobia. Interesting fact. The sign of three gold balls that pawnbrokers hang outside their premises represent the three bags of gold that St Nicholas gave to his impoverished neighbour for a dowry to enable the neighbour's three daughters to marry. And furthermore, Santa Claus's red tunic is nothing to do with the corporate colour of Coca-Cola, as shown in their Christmas advertisements of the 1930s, but rather stems from the American cartoonist Thomas Nast, whose vision of Santa Claus was dressed in the red robes of a bishop. How should you show your appreciation for Santa? I don't know. How should you show your appreciation for Santa? Santa Claus. Oh. 
But back to the English Father Christmas, who is based more on the pagan green man figure, who, dressed in green and wreathed in evergreen foliage, holly, ivy and mistletoe, was a common feature of pagan festivities, representing hope and the coming of spring. Indeed, early Victorian depictions of Father Christmas show him in a green tunic. The pagan Saxons of 5th and 6th century England had a custom of personifying the various elements of nature, and in the middle of winter, someone from the community would be chosen to represent Father Winter. Clad in green robes edged with white fur illustrating ice and snow, he would be welcomed into people's homes, invited to sit by the fire and plied with food and drink, in the hope that he would repay such hospitality with a mild winter and a bountiful spring. Could this be why we leave out a mince pie and a tot of sherry for Father Christmas on Christmas Eve? And with all those mince pies and sherry inside him, no wonder Father Christmas is so rotund and jolly. <laughs> Green men can be found on stone columns and medieval bench ends in churches all over Britain, but nowhere can match the variety of green men depicted at Roslyn Chapel, surely the ancestral home of Father Christmas's forebears. Stop 6. Boynton, the East Riding, Yorkshire. Why did they need the turkey in the band? I don't know. Why did they need the turkey in the band? Because he had the drumsticks. <laughs> Nine out of ten families in Britain gobble up a turkey at Christmas, all thanks to a Yorkshireman called William Strickland. If you want to talk turkey, the place to go is Boynton in the East Riding of Yorkshire, where you will find Boynton Hall the ancestral home of the Strickland family. The hall is private, but standing at the gates is the splendid church of St Andrew, which is open to all. Although dating from the 15th century, it has one of the finest Georgian interiors in the country, with green painted pews and a west gallery accessed by a spiral stair, all the work of John Carr of York in the 18th century. What immediately draws the eye, however, is the turkey motif, in particular the lectern, which rests not on the outstretched wings of an eagle, as is traditional, but upon the rounded tail of a turkey. It is splendid, so lifelike one can almost hear it gobble. <laughs> and it is unique, the only turkey lectern in the world and the king of poultry can also be found in abundance adorning the impressive Strickland family tombs in the chancel. But why, I hear you ask? I will tell you why. Early in the 16th century, around 1520, young William Strickland, footloose son of a Yorkshire gentleman, sailed with Sebastian Cabot to the New World in search of gold. They didn't find gold, but the voyage turned out not to be a complete turkey for William, 
who managed to purchase a gang or rafter of wild turkeys from the local Native Americans, which he brought back to England and introduced to the king. Henry VIII thus becoming the first king of England to enjoy turkey for his dinner. was Henry VIII's favourite part of the turkey? I don't know. What was Henry VIII's favourite part of the turkey? The crown! (laughs) (laughs) It would take another 400 years and the invention of the refrigerator before the turkey could become established as the Christmas staple. Before that, Most people had to make do with a smaller, less expensive native bird, such as a goose, a pheasant or a pigeon. Turkey was a luxury for the wealthy and was first brought to the attention of ordinary folk by Charles Dickens in A Christmas Carol, in which he has the guilt-ridden humbug Ebenezer Scrooge order a passing boy to fetch a prize turkey and deliver it to his ill-used clerk Bob Cratchit and his family in place of their usual goose. No doubt the turkey came from Leadenhall Market, then London's premier poultry market, which was close to Scrooge's counting house off Cornhill in the city of London. William Strickland did very well out of the turkey. He brought Boynton Hall with the proceeds of his discovery and when he applied for his coat of arms, he requested that a turkey cock in his pride proper be incorporated into the design, and the result can be seen on the Strickland tombs in Boynton Church. Incidentally, the crude sketch of a turkey that William Strickland drew to illustrate what he was after for his crest is the first known drawing of a turkey in the world, and it can still be seen at the College of Arms in London. Maybe William Strickland did strike gold in America, after all. Why did the turkey cross the road? I don't know. Why did the turkey cross the road? Because he wasn't chicken. (laughs) Stop seven. The Priory, Tunbridge, Kent. In half a minute, Mrs Cratchit entered, flushed but smiling proudly with the pudding, like a pickled cannonball so hard and firm, blazing in half a cordon of ignited brandy and bedight with Christmas holly stuck into the top. Oh, what a wonderful pudding! So did Charles Dickens introduce the Christmas pudding in A Christmas Carol, although then it was just called plum pudding and was a descendant of the medieval pottage, a kind of soup or stew that could be kept bubbling over the fire all day long and into which could be thrown pretty much anything, and it was sweetened with dried plums, hence plum pudding. The first person to call her festive plum pudding Christmas pudding was Eliza Acton in her pioneering cookbook, published in 1845, Modern Cookery for Private Families, or to give it its full title... Modern cookery, in all its branches, reduced to a system of easy practice for the use of private families, in a series of practical receipts which have been strictly tested and are given with the most minute exactness. 
In the book, Eliza Acton, described by Delia Smith as the best writer of recipes in the English language, lays out the recipe for the author's Christmas pudding, a recipe that is now accepted as the standard for the traditional Christmas pud. To three ounces of flour and the same weight of fine, lightly grated breadcrumbs, add six of beef kidney suet chopped small, six of raisins weighed after they are stoned, six of well-cleaned currants, four ounces of mixed apples, five of sugar, two of candied orange rind, half a teaspoon of nutmeg mixed with pounded mace, a very little salt, a small glass of brandy, and three whole eggs. Mix and beat these ingredients well together. Tie them tightly in a thickly floured cloth and boil them for three hours and a half. We can recommend this as a remarkably light, small, rich pudding. It may be served with German wine or punch sauce. Priory, the house where Eliza Acton lived and created the classic traditional Christmas pudding, and indeed the first ever cookbook, still stands beside the parish church in Tunbridge in Kent, and is a place of pilgrimage for all lovers of cookery, cookbooks and cooks. It is Eliza Acton we have to thank for Mrs Beaton, Fanny Craddock, Keith Floyd, Jamie Oliver, Otto Lenghi, Nadia Hussein, Gordon Ramsay, Two Fat Ladies, this is Patmore, Ainsley Harriet, Anthony Royal Thomas. What did Fred Astaire say when Ginger Rogers dropped the Christmas pudding on him? I don't know. What did Fred Astaire say when Ginger Rogers dropped the Christmas pudding on him? Putting on my top hat, putting on my white tie, putting on my tails. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Stop 8. Windsor Castle, Royal Berkshire. Why are Christmas trees so bad at sewing? I don't know. Why are Christmas trees so bad at sewing? They always drop their needles. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Very clever. <laughs> In December 1848, the cover of the Christmas supplement to the Illustrated London News carried a picture of the royal family, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert and their children, gathered around the Christmas tree at Windsor Castle. Although this was not the first Christmas tree in Britain, it was the first that most people in Britain had ever seen. It would be many years before Christmas trees became affordable for almost everyone, but this image began the fashion for trees and also helped promote the idea of Christmas as a family occasion. Although, as this wonderful passage from Jane Austen's Persuasion, written some 30 years earlier, shows us, 
Christmas was already a family affair for many. Immediately surrounding Mrs Musgrove were the little Harvilles, whom she was sedulously guarding from the tyranny of the two children from the cottage, expressly arrived to amuse them. On one side was a table occupied by some chattering girls cutting up silk and gold paper, and on the other were trestles and trays bending under the weight of brawn and cold pies, where riotous boys were holding high revel, the whole completed by a roaring Christmas fire, which seemed determined to be heard in spite of all the noise of the others. Charles and Mary also came in, of course, during their visit, and Mr Musgrove made a point of paying his respects to Lady Russell and sat down close to her for ten minutes, talking with a very raised voice, but from the clamour of the children on his knees, generally in vain. It was a fine family piece. The actual first Christmas tree ever seen in Britain was also put up at Windsor, nearly 50 years earlier, by Queen Charlotte, the wife of George III, in the Queen's Lodge in 1800. The Queen's Lodge, which sat south of the main castle bang across the long walk, is, alas, no longer there, having been demolished in 1823 on the orders of George IV, because it spoiled his view. Who is the Christmas tree's favourite singer? I don't know who is the Christmas tree's favourite singer. Spruce Springsteen. (sighs) (laughs) Queen Charlotte came from the Grand Duchy of Mecklenburg-Strelitz in northern Germany where it was the custom at Christmas time to bring a yew branch into the house and decorate it with candles and small presents. Charlotte brought the tradition with her to England when she married George III in 1761, and in 1800 she decided to hold a Christmas party at the Queen's Lodge in Windsor for some of the local children, and it soon became clear that a single yew branch would be far too small to hold presents for so many people, so she ordered that an entire tree be installed in the middle of the drawing room, which she then had lavishly decorated with baubles and sweets. Her biographer, Dr John Watkins, left us a vivid description of Britain's first Christmas tree. In the middle of the room stood an immense tub with a yew tree placed in it, from the branches of which hung bunches of sweetmeats, almonds and raisins in papers, fruits and toys most tasteful arranged, and the whole illuminated by small wax candles. After the company had walked around and admired the tree, each child obtained a portion of the sweets which it bore, together with a toy, and then all returned home quite delighted Like so many of our modern Christmas traditions, the advent calendar, Christmas markets, tinsel, glass baubles, the idea of a decorated Christmas tree came from Germany and goes right back to pagan times when the tribes of northern Germany hung nuts and fruits from the branches of evergreen trees as gifts for the winter deities. Evergreens, of course, had long been a part of midwinter rituals their greenery symbolising everlasting life and hope during the dark winter months. And in Christian terms, the tree, when hung with apples, represented the tree of knowledge from the Garden of Eden, 
the green of the tree and the red of the apples, giving us our Christmas colours of green and red. What do you get if you cross a Christmas tree with an apple? I don't know. What do you get if you cross a Christmas tree with an apple? A pineapple. Oh, yeah, because it's pines like from the first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stop nine, King's College Chapel, Cambridge. What did Adam say to his wife on the day before Christmas? I don't know. What did Adam say to his wife on the day before Christmas? It's Christmas Eve. Uh, <laughs> Christmas Eve. <laughs> For many people, not just in Britain, but around the world, Christmas begins at 3pm on Christmas Eve, with the most famous carol service in the world, the Festival of Nine Lessons and Carols, from King's College Chapel, Cambridge. Introduced in 1918 by the then Dean of King's, Eric Milner-White, in an effort to make church services more dynamic and imaginative. The following year, in 1919, one of the most cherished features of the service was introduced, the opening of the proceedings with an unaccompanied solo of the first verse of Once in Royal David's City by a boy chorister. The chorister chosen for the honour is not told until minutes beforehand, so that he doesn't have time to get nervous, which he might well considering the service is broadcast around the world by the BBC to an audience of millions, as it has been since 1928. King's College Chapel, begun by Henry VI in 1441 and completed by Henry VIII in 1531, is often described as the most beautiful building in the world, and the Choir of Kings as the best choir in the world and the Festival of Nine Lessons and Carols as the loveliest carol service in the world. And anyone can take part in the service if they are prepared to queue up outside the chapel early enough on the morning of Christmas Eve. Why did the choir have to cancel the carol service? I don't know. Why did the choir have to cancel the carol service? They all had tinselitis. <laughs> Now, although King's College Chapel is seen as the home of the service of nine lessons and carols, Cambridge is not where it began. For that, we must go to Cornwall. Stop 10. Truro Cathedral, Cornwall. The service of nine lessons and carols was devised by the first Bishop of Truro, Edward Benson, some say as a way of keeping people out of the pubs. And it was held in Truro Cathedral in 1880. Well, I say Truro Cathedral, it was actually a wooden hut, temporarily playing the role of Truro Cathedral, while the actual cathedral was being built. The first Anglican cathedral to be built on a new site since Salisbury in 1220. Completed in 1910, 
Truro is a magnificent example of Gothic Revival architecture and is one of only three cathedrals in Britain to have three spires, the others being Lichfield and St Mary's Catholic Cathedral in Edinburgh. Intriguingly, Truro Cathedral has a kink in it, and if you stand at the west door and look down the long nave, you will notice that the nave and chancel are slightly out of alignment. This is because the architect John Loughborough Pearson had to squeeze the whole structure into a tight, uneven space, and also somehow incorporate into the new cathedral the original church that stood on the site, St Mary's, which now makes up one of the side aisles. Anyway, Bishop Benson's new carol service, despite being held in a hut, proved a great success and went on to become the carol service of choice across the nation. In fact, it was even more significant than that because it was the first ever formal church carol service. Until then, carols had been regarded as rather too boisterous and racy and, dare one say it, Anglo-Saxon to be used in church since they had evolved out of the ancient wassailing songs whereby people would sing songs wishing each other and their orchards and crops Vas heal, the Saxon for good health, perhaps in return for a drink or some food. Wassailing itself evolved from the pagan custom of offering up songs and sacrifices to the winter gods in the hope of a good harvest, and many early carols were adaptations of these pagan and hearty wassailing songs. Indeed, the word carol comes from the old French carole, meaning a dancing song to welcome the coming of spring. The first Christian Christmas carol may have been heard in Rome as far back as AD 129, when it is said that Pope Telesphorus, the eighth Bishop of Rome after Peter, ordained that In the holy night of the nativity of our Lord and Saviour, all shall solemnly sing the angels' hymn. The angel's hymn is thought to be Gloria in excelsis Deo, glory to God on high, as sung by the heavenly host to the shepherds in the field, after the angel of the Lord had announced to them the birth of the Son of God. And the angel's hymn has come down to us today as the chorus of a well-known 19th century carol, Angels We Have Heard on High. Anyway, in Victorian times, there was a great resurgence of carol singing, with the old carols adapted and many new carols being written that were suitable for singing in church. And hence, Bishop Benson had a wide choice from which to choose the nine carols for his new service. What is my dog's favourite Christmas carol? I don't know. What is your dog's favourite Christmas carol? Bark the herald angels sing. Oh. Stop 11, St John's Centre, Liverpool. Why did Santa give up his pipe? I don't know. Why did Santa give up his pipe? It was bad for his elf. <laughs> elf. 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 Get it? Elf. 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 <laughs> 
children of Liverpool had the extraordinary privilege of being the first children in Britain to actually come face to face with Father Christmas. In 1879, the world's first ever Christmas grotto opened in Lewis's department store in the middle of Liverpool. And for the first time, children were able to meet Father Christmas in person and tell him what they wanted for Christmas. The idea for the grotto, which was called Christmas Fairyland, came from store owner David Lewis, who wanted a Christmas-themed display to fill the exhibition hall of his store. The grotto took the form of a cavern filled with Christmas lights and decorated with Christmas trees, snow, a couple of polar bears, models of Liverpool landmarks covered in snow, and of course, Father Christmas himself. It was such a success that the idea was copied all over the world, and Santa's Grotto, where children can meet Father Christmas, nowadays usually accompanied by his little helpers, the elves, has become a much-loved part of Christmas everywhere. What do you call Santa's little helpers? I don't know. What do you call Santa's little helpers? Subordinate clauses. <laughs> Despite Lewis's department store finally closing in 2010, Lewis's Christmas Fairyland is still going strong, as the world's famous grotto held every year in the St John's Centre in Liverpool, just a block away from its original home. And the final stops, Lincoln, Manchester and Birmingham. Why did no one buy Donder and Blitzen at the Christmas market? I don't know. Why did no one buy Donder and Blitzen at the Christmas market? They were too dear. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Growing bigger and better every year, Christmas markets are a relatively new phenomenon in Britain, but they have been a feature in Germany for centuries. Known as Weihnachtsmarkte, they evolved from the winter markets held in many German towns since the 13th century where people could stock up on food and supplies to see them through the cold winter months. They became a good opportunity for people to meet up together and sample local produce. And over time, local craftsmen set up stalls to sell their wares, such as leather goods and wooden toys for children. The first traditional German Christmas market seen in Britain was held in Lincoln in 1982, when 11 stalls were set up by stallholders from Lincoln's twin town of Neustadt in Germany, in the city's glorious Castle Square, sandwiched between the castle and Lincoln's magnificent cathedral, one of the wonders of Britain. In 1311, Lincoln Cathedral became the first building in almost 4,000 years to surpass the height of the Great Pyramid, and for more than 200 years after that was the tallest building in the world, with a central spire 525 feet high. Alas, the spire blew down in a storm in 1549, and Lincoln's title 
was passed on to St Mary's Church in Stralsund, appropriately enough, in Germany. Britain's biggest Christmas market began life in 1999, with just 15 stalls set up in Manchester's Albert Square, overlooked by the imposing Town Hall, designed by Alfred Waterhouse to be superior to any other Town Hall in Britain. Today, Manchester's Christmas Market has over 300 stalls and receives some 9 million visitors every year. Britain's biggest authentic German Christmas market is Birmingham's Frankfurt Christmas Market, centred on Victoria Square, alongside the Town Hall in the city centre. First held in 2001 with 24 stalls, it now boasts 180 stalls and is the biggest authentic German Christmas market anywhere in the world, outside Germany or Austria. Well, that concludes our Christmas tour of Britain. Learn lots more about Christmas, not just in Britain, but around the world, its origins and traditions, in Christopher Wynne's The Book of Christmas, found in all good bookshops, online and at ChristopherWinsIneverKnewThat.com. But before we go, there's just time for my favourite Christmas cracker joke of them all. What do you call two chess players showing off their intellectual prowess in a hotel lobby? I don't know. What do you call two chess players showing off their intellectual prowess in a hotel lobby? Two chestnuts boasting in an open foyer. Ooh. <laughs> this has been an I Never Knew That production, brought to you by Christopher Wynne and the talented Van Sittets, Rupert, Emma and Eden. My thanks to them, and my thanks to you for listening. Please join me next time for more stories guaranteed to make you exclaim again and again, I never knew that.